From the International Energy Forum, the home of Global Energy Dialogue, this is the IF Podcast. I'm Joe McMonagle, Secretary General of the International Energy Forum. Today's guest is Lord John Brown, or to give him his full title, Lord Brown of Mattingly. Having joined BP as a university apprentice, Lord Brown rose up the ranks to serve as Group Chief Executive from 1995 to 2007. He led the company through a period of growth and transformation, including the merger with Amoco in 1998. His landmark speech at Stanford University in 1997 established BP as a global leader in the way it thought about and sought to address climate change. He has broad interest in the arts and plays an active role in civil society in the UK and in the United States. He's a fellow of the Royal Society, the Royal Academy of Engineering, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And of course, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1998 and was made a life peer in 2001. Today, Lord Brown is chairman of Beyond Net Zero, a climate venture which identifies entrepreneurs who are addressing climate-focused problems and helps them scale. And hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about Beyond Net Zero today in the podcast. Lord Brown, it's an honor to have you join us. Welcome to the IAF podcast. Thank you for having me. So I thought what we would start is with the uh, here and now, the most immediate uh, issue that we read in our uh, newspapers or uh, Twitter feeds and and different uh, media sources. And that's, of course, the energy crisis. You know, last winter, we started, I think, to see the first initial stages of the energy crisis with skyrocketing natural gas prices and, of course, rising oil prices. How do you see the next several months of this winter playing out? Uh, how is Europe doing to mitigate the supply crisis? And what are your recommendations for policymakers in the short and medium term? Well, of course, this uh, crisis is an affordability crisis for most people in the world. Can they afford to have energy and food at the same time? Uh, It's also a security problem in that we're not sure where supplies are going to come from and how reliable they are. Uh, And that's really a first for a long time. Uh, Energy security was always on the agenda and it's come right back now. And finally, there is actually a real tight supply, not just of natural gas, but of oil, actually of everything. So I think uh, the thing you have to remember, as we all remember, is it takes more than just a wish to change a supply shortage. It takes time. It takes time to de-bottleneck. It takes time to build new uh, facilities. And people are doing just that. Actually, right now, I'd say people are doing everything they possibly can. They want everything today, provided it's provided locally or or by a friend of theirs somewhere in the world. So uh, people are, for example, uh, making sure that uh, a lot of LNG is coming from the United States. 12 BCF a day of LNG is coming out of the US. It's the largest amount in the world. And the plans are extraordinary to get it up to getting on for over 40 BCF a day. That, That seems like a lot. But uh, regas terminals are being built uh, in various places and people are building non-hydrocarbon energy. So I think they're doing what they can, but I think this winter is going to be pretty tight and people will be nervous. They'll be nervous about where the supply is coming from. 
And most importantly, I think for all citizens is it's going to be very expensive. And that is something governments will probably have to help with. Certainly in Europe, that's what they're doing at the moment. And wouldn't you say that uh, I think a lot of the common uh, views today are that the energy crisis was really spurred by the war in Ukraine. But as my question indicated, I I mean, we kind of view the energy crisis as starting really before the war. Certainly the war has has exacerbated the situation and, and of course, it's turned into a little bit more of an energy access issue uh, now as well. But I think as you pointed out, in an article or something I read recently that, uh, you know, affordability of energy for consumers, is it used to be just a problem for poor countries. Now it's a problem for rich countries. But but can you talk a little bit about the impact of the war? And maybe I, I think I'm a little concerned that we, the, we learned the wrong lessons here, that the lesson of the energy crisis was that it was just caused by the war in Ukraine. I think that would be a mistake. I think when you look at any crisis, uh, anyone would say, the seeds of the crisis were sown well before the crisis. The crisis just tipped us over the edge. Uh, And there are two things going on here. Number one, uh, lack of investment in energy generally, uh, which certainly was the case well before the war. Uh, There were some false signals about demand, you know, with COVID and lockdown and less flying and working from home. So, the amount of investment in energy started coming down. In addition, in in the Western world, uh, the returns on that investment weren't very good. So most investors said to uh, companies that were quoted in the stock market, I tell you what, don't invest in energy, uh, give us the money back and either buy back or stock or give us a dividend because uh, they thought that the energy business was in any event Uh, in the evening of its days, and it would eventually shut down. So secondly, uh, we got used to global supply chains working very well. Everyone was reliable. Everyone was trustworthy. You could move hydrocarbons around at will around the world. And that proved to be uh, not true. So we learned two lessons, I think. First, Uh, that energy needs constant investment, actually probably needs more than constant investment. Certainly hydrocarbons are a uh, a diminishing resource. It it naturally declines, must be invested in. And and secondly, we learned that uh, it would take time for hydrocarbons to come out of the energy system. And thirdly, we learned a lesson I just talked about, which is about security. We learned that security comes from diversity of supply uh, in addition to uh, your friends, but as much as you can do locally. So these lessons are learned and we're now reaping the the sad uh, rewards of not uh, abiding by those lessons. Uh, I think that uh, a diversity of supply is expensive. Security is expensive. And people have forgotten that you had to pay for that. Very important to remember that. I recall always um, trying to sell um, LNG to uh, Japan. And Japan always said, actually, we'll pay more as long as we really are your client and we really can get access to it because it's so important for us and we can't do without it. Security for them 
was something which is really important. Security for everyone is important now. But we also need to remember that uh, we can wish uh, for a hydrocarbon-free world. And that would be very convenient, let me say, because uh, that would mean we would not have to take carbon out of hydrocarbons and we would not be imperiling the world with climate change. But it takes time to get there. This is about an energy transition, not about an energy cliff edge. Exactly, yeah. And just follow up on the energy crisis question. I mean, what we're seeing, as I talk to different ministers and travel to different energy conferences, we're seeing the energy crisis in Europe now spreading to other parts of the world, uh, particularly developing uh, countries who can least afford to deal with it. So you mentioned LNG. We had this example where Pakistan you know, had a, a couple of months ago had this uh, tender, billion-dollar tender for to buy natural gas or LNG and couldn't find a single seller because Europe is now suddenly pricing others out of the market. And so how do we how do we go about solving that crisis? We obviously, the obvious answer is more LNG supply, but what can we do here to, to protect the developing world from this energy crisis in Europe? Well, we have rediscovered that energy is a, a, a global market. Uh, natural gas wasn't, but LNG clearly made it global. So it tends to go, uh, bidders with the highest price, the longest contracts tend to win. Uh, and we need to remember that. Therefore, we must have more supply. We must have more supply of energy. So it's not just hydrocarbons, it's renewable energy, it's nuclear power, it's all of the above. And that needs to apply to everyone in the world. Meanwhile, while we're going through this crisis, we have a problem, I think, in allocation of fairness around the world. We do need to help nations, as we've always done. The rich world has always helped nations in financial difficulty with development assistance, a variety of things like that. We need to continue to do that, especially during this energy crisis. Because if we disenfranchise huge parts of the world, from growth and from a decent way of life, then one day we will for sure pay for that. Uh, I'd like to turn to one of the points you made in your, your earlier answer, and that's this topic of, of investment. Um, the IEF and S&P Global issued a report last year uh, calling attention to the problem of underinvestment in, in hydrocarbons. We're actually in the process of updating it and we'll release uh, the assessment for 2022 in December. Um, but the uncertainty uh, from the pandemic, I think, has made the problem worse for three consecutive years of CapEx cuts. Um, and of course, now leaders of consuming countries are calling for more production to address the energy crisis. Our report with S&P concluded that investment needs to rise by 50% annually for the next decade just to keep up with demand. Do you agree that there is a problem of underinvestment in hydrocarbons? Uh, and, and how do we keep up with global demand while we aggressively pursue uh, the energy transition? There's a problem with uh, the rate of investment in all forms of energy, and in particular in energy transition assets. If you look at the amount of money needed for both production, changes in the consuming structure and infrastructure in energy, most people would say we're putting about a trillion dollars in around the world at the moment, and that's got to go up to between three and four trillion in real terms. 
a subset of that is hydrocarbons, and in particular, oil and gas. And there's definitely been less than necessary investment. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that wasting assets, we have to put money in to keep them at least constant, if not grow them slightly with demand. The demand for oil grows incredibly slowly, and I would think it will continue to grow very slowly, if not flatten out. Natural gas, on the other hand, is moving up in demand and will represent a, a, a longer term portion of energy demand for, for a long time, for a very long time. So we need to invest not just for today, but for the long term. And I am in complete agreement that we have not put enough money into oil and gas. I think we haven't put enough money into renewable energy, and we certainly haven't put enough money into infrastructure uh, that will provide energy to all those who need it. I'd like to expand a little bit more on this point you said about investment generally, uh, and, and particularly talk about what you're doing now at Beyond Net Zero. Um, but first, sort of just talk about this. Um, the IA did this technology report, I think it's 2020, uh, in which it said that you know the world can, can meet half of its climate goals under the 2050 scenario with renewables. And then the other half has to come from new technologies or, or technologies that are not yet commercialized. Um, th this is an area that we focus on uh, as well at the IF is investment in clean tech R&D. And we, we have an initiative in which we call on countries, me member countries and governments to really invest in clean energy R&D because, you know, it, it, it tends, these game-changing technologies tend to be the, the, the most risky. And companies, of course, I'm sure at BP, you had a huge R&D budget but, you know, we shouldn't expect companies, I don't think, to invest in a lot of risky uh, R&D. So it's really important that countries do that. I'm, I'm particularly proud of my country, the United States, for uh, the Biden administration quadrupling the clean energy R&D, uh, the Department of Energy. Uh, but uh, I know uh, France has also done a similar move in Italy and other countries. So we're, we're trying to encourage that because we see that as the real uh, solution here. Uh, but I think what you're doing also is is just critically important too. Um, you just completed the first anniversary of Beyond Net Zero, and I think have deployed about eight hundred million dollars into five different companies. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Beyond Net Zero, and where are you seeing opportunities, and which technologies have the most promise? I think to get us this other half of the technology gap to to get to net zero and beyond. Let me divide it into today and tomorrow. For Beyond Net Zero, we can find companies to invest in uh, that are doing really important uh, activity, which is profitable, and also reduces greenhouse gases in line with established benchmark targets. We use science-based targets to keep us absolutely honest year by year, and we expect our companies to not only meet them, but exceed them. This is very important. It's the biggest piece of ESG. We do other things in ESG, but this is our critical uh, gateway. So we can find companies to invest in that need money to grow. And that's what we do, whether they are in energy efficiency. So we have, for example, a company that uh, optimizes supply chains to make them more and more efficient to do with carbon output, time to travel cost. We have invested in a great company that 
looks at uh, ESG factors in the supply chain for big enterprises and importantly uses data to do that. And equally, we've invested in a company uh, that is doing distributed solar energy installation in sub-Sahara Africa. Very exciting and very high growth company. Just a name, but a few. So, so we can do that. And there's plenty to do to get on and invest right today, even in some technologies that may appear to be primitive today that will get better over time because no technology will get better unless it's invested in. You can't sit there and say, well, we'll wait till it gets better. If no one invests it, we'll never get better. So it's a, a rule of engineering that things get cheaper and better the more you do of them. And it's really true for almost everything uh, that one can think of in the energy space, with actually the exception of large-scale nuclear reactors, which seem to go the other way. But there are good reasons for that. So we have plenty of things to do. In the medium term, the world still has plenty of things to do. Lots of things are coming on, like small-scale nuclear reactors, which should have much better cost control and much better efficiency. More uh, bigger wind turbines, they're coming on, you know, and they will make wind even more competitive. It's very competitive indeed. And then in the long term, I, I pick a few. We can capture and store carbon dioxide. We can definitely do that. Uh, but actually, people are researching much better ways of managing carbon, whether we can put carbon into the ocean, whether we can do make different things with it. This is very exciting. And finally, I think, you know, we have committed, I, I think, in many parts of the world to using electricity, which is a secondary source of energy, as the primary input into life, except for industrial heat. So there's a lot of improvement needed there. We need to improve our grid, a lot of infrastructure, we need to improve control systems, very exciting activity. We need to do better on automobiles, uh, electric automobiles. They're great now, but they could get so much better. And what about trucks uh, that go long distance? You know, Can they be hybrid between hydrogen and uh, batteries? So lots and lots of exciting things going on. And then finally, I mean, it seems to me if we do roll out a very big program of renewables, which I believe we should, we need to roll out a very big program of long duration energy storage. And we haven't cracked that problem either. We, we could do it, but it's quite primitive. We now need better ways of doing that. And I can see many of these things certainly being incentivized, if not explicitly stated, in what I think is the very, very good um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, IRA, in the United States. It's a very important signal, as well as a productive and practical set of things uh, that will encourage people to move forward in these areas. Yeah, I'd agree with you, uh, and particularly on, on CCUS. There's, there's tremendous uh, incentives on the carbon uh, capture use and storage uh, and uh, really, really important signal sending. And still, we need to keep developing and uh, looking for better ways of doing all these things. And we know that uh, both the DOE and the world as a whole, I know in the UK, 
we have research programs looking at all these areas and we're putting in a very large amount of money, even in the United Kingdom, on net zero technologies. Give us a sense of your, uh, where, where do we stand on uh, the journey to net zero seven years after, after the Paris Agreement? Is, is the energy crisis and the war in Ukraine a setback? And, and what do you see as the focus of the upcoming COP meeting in Egypt? And for that matter, I wonder if the focus might, uh, the emphasis might change a little bit with COP being in Egypt and then the following year in, in the UAE. What, give, give us your thoughts on COP and, and where we stand. I, I really think that the, uh, the impact of uh, this present energy crisis on net zero, it's as the Chinese said about the French Revolution, a bit too early to tell. Uh, and I think we have to wait and see. I think common sense would say that we probably have uh, burnt more hydrocarbons and will burn more hydrocarbons than we had expected to uh, as a result of this activity, notably coal, I think, making up uh, a chunk. Uh, and so that, that's bound to be a bit of a setback. But equally, uh, the idea of energy security, now having been made front and central with affordability, says that people will invest more in local energy sources, which will include more on renewable and on hydrocarbon sources. So we'll have a balance here. I have not heard anyone go walking backwards from the need to go to net zero. There is a debate about exactly how and when, and, and a particular debate at the moment on whether the word net has real meaning with carbon offsets, uh, which have yet to be standardized and measured in a way which fills everyone with confidence. So there are lots of issues to be sorted out, but the intent, I believe, is still there. And the intent, uh, I believe, will continue in these COP meetings. Uh, the one in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt was uh, slated to talk about $100 billion uh, annum of uh, transfer payments to the developing world from the developed world, uh, the questions of uh, adaptation uh, and the questions of uh, uh, loss and damage. I, I think that uh, the agenda will be still quite a strenuous agenda about whether the world is committed to doing what it's committed to do and what can be done to help all people go in that direction. Uh, I still think that's the case. I'm sure there'll be plenty of detail uh, to work on. I think, let's see how the dust settles. Uh, maybe COP28 in, in Abu Dhabi will be a, a very different experience as we perhaps see with greater clarity what we're doing in a world where the supply patterns for energy don't include Russia. Uh, and I think that's something that we will know with much greater clarity, we'll actually see things happening uh, in a year's time, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, geopolitics always have strange ways of changing in unpredictable ways, often in inconvenient ways, uh, but we'll see how that all works out uh, as time goes by. So I, I always think it's, it's very difficult to uh, forecast the future for energy, because there are too many players, too many uh, parameters, too many things that can go right and wrong. 
Uh, now is a particularly difficult time. But I would say this winter, very difficult. Uh, people pushing hard, haven't yet let go of net zero. I hope they never do. Uh, the ways of getting there will keep changing. And I, I agree with something else you said during your previous comments that, that, that this is going to take time. There's no energy transition clip where it happens overnight. And I think that's really important because actually at the last COP in Scotland, some of, some of the things you started to hear in the corridors uh, behind the scenes was the need to manage the transition. But of course, we the backdrop for Scotland was uh, the, end, the beginning stages of high energy prices, particularly in the UK and, and in Europe. And I think it's really important for people who care about climate change, because if the public starts to equate these high prices and volatility, the ups and downs with climate policies or transition uh, you know, policies, I think we're in real trouble because we will lose public support for, for the transition. And I'm just interested in, in your thoughts on that. We are. We will have to create a new narrative, there is no doubt, uh, and bring everyone with us. Uh, high prices for energy, uh, people are not really excited about the reason why. They want to know when the price will come down. Uh, and we must get that price down. Uh, so we need a greater supply of different sources of energy. It's uh, remarkable that the price of natural gas uh, in the United States at one time a few weeks ago was one-tenth of what it was in Europe. So that shows you that there's something that can be done here. Uh, I think the other thing that could be done is we should think about consumption, how we consume, uh, and I, I, no one could realistically expect someone to say, well, I will voluntarily get very cold, I'll voluntarily uh, live in darkness. But actually, there are a lot of ways where we can have machines to control that, where you don't actually notice small changes of boiler temperature, small changes in the fact that lights actually go up when you're not in a room, you know, in a home, in the office that happens, in the home it doesn't. You know, getting all that stuff sorted out, getting better, get, getting the, envir the built environment better, all of these things will begin to help. Uh, it's, you know, we are, to use an analogy, uh, using energy or have used energy in the past, just like uh, keeping the water running just in case we want to clean our toothbrush while we're brushing our teeth for five minutes. You know, we don't do that now. A lot of people don't do it because water is precious and energy is very precious. We've just got to change the way we think about it a bit. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I'd like to sort of ask a, a final question here, but it's an important one, and, and it's on the topic of energy access. As you mentioned earlier in one of your answers, there's a profound inequality today in access to energy worldwide, particularly, uh, I think, in, in the global south. Um, and unfortunately, I think COVID has really made the gap uh, much worse, the, uh, those with energy and those without the World Bank recently said that that number has grown by about 90 million people uh, because of, of COVID. And of course, you have this 600 million uh, figure of folks who don't have access to, to energy and, and majority of which are in Africa, which, which is just growing. I mean, every two years, Africa is growing the population of a country the size of France or Thailand. So it's a, it's a growing economy that has huge energy needs. 
um, and of course wants to develop uh, for its, its citizens. How do you reconcile the growing needs of the developing world with this need to reach a net zero in just two to three decades uh, from now? So quite a lot of the Southern Hemisphere and uh, the Indian subcontinent is particularly uh, hurt by rising sea levels or by changes in the geomorphology as a result of uh, you know, climate change, I mean, inability to grow crops and things like this. It's really the duty of the world to do something about that. Uh, and the world has a vested interest uh, because the less land there is, the more people to live on it. Uh, and there's no reason why uh, they won't have a fair share of it. I, I remember the late uh, Prime Minister of India uh, reminding all of us uh, that every human has an equal entitlement to the atmosphere. I think that's an important thing to remember. We're a long way away from there. But if we can move step by step uh, and recognise that development assistance, transfer of money from the rich to the poor is always very difficult. We always have reasons to know that our energy infrastructure isn't as good as it should be. So why don't we spend money on that? While someone doesn't have any at all, uh, it's a continuous and eternal debate. But in the end, it's something which says to get this done globally, we have to take everyone with us, everyone with us, and that's people who live on biomass burning, who you know run diesel generators because they don't have access to the grid. Why can't we give them a distributed uh, renewable energy? The list goes on. It takes money. It takes financing in that we have to probably bear the burden of the guarantees uh, that are needed to be given out by IFIs uh, to make all this happen so that we can actually get enterprise to come into countries to do the right thing and actually to build enterprise inside these countries. I, I think this is very important. It's not just Africa, but Africa is very important. It's also, for example, uh, South America, the southern part of the Western Hemisphere is most definitely uh, got a lot of issues that can be sorted out uh, by better technology and better development of the energy system. Yeah, it'd be really important to share all this technology and intellectual property that, that we develop in, in the transition, uh, certainly. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, it's an excellent way, I think, uh, to bring this uh, podcast to a close. So thanks again uh, to Lord Brown, Chairman of Beyond Net Zero, for sharing your views and perspectives. And to everyone listening today, Subscribe to the IAF podcast and hear more thoughtful discussions about energy issues, news, sustainability, and transitions, and of course, our work and activities at the IAF, available wherever you listen to podcasts.